1: Before we get started, quick word from our sponsor. It's Netflix and the original series BoJack Horseman. If you've been waiting for BoJack to come back, it has happened. BoJack is back and this year he's really trying to be a better horseman. Don't miss the series that Slate calls a brilliant comedy. BoJack Horseman stars Will Arnett, Amy Sedaris, Alison Brie, Paul F. Tompkins, Aaron Paul and special guest star Lisa Kudrow. Smelly cat, smelly cat. All episodes are currently streaming right now only on Netflix. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm
3: here with just one co-host, Aaron. How are you, sir? It's gotten lonely here. I miss Evan, but uh, I'm I'm pushing on. I've moved on. Yeah. Evan's never coming back, He's dead. and I'm just—he's dead to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. I'm stealing myself for an Evanless future. Okay, his daughter can replace him in like twenty years. <laughs> there you go. Um, Who is on the show this week? Uh, this week we got uh, we got a real uh, we got
1: a real gift this week. Margaret Sullivan, she's the public editor of the New York Times and she does not like to give interviews.
3: Yeah. And yet she talked to us for the show. That's that's incredible.
1: Yeah. She has a standard line which is like uh,
3: no. Yeah, so it's, it's almost like a I was going to say it's like it's almost like some sort of weird conflict of interest, but I probably shouldn't say that before <laughs> uh, I haven't heard the interview, so I don't know whether it's a conflict of interest. Well, but. it
1: was it was a real privilege to talk to her. She's got such an interesting job, man. There yeah. uh, most places that have Public editors or ombuds people yeah. uh, have uh, let go of their ombuds. I was going to say,
3: is she the only public editor yeah, left the, in
1: America? The Post had one gone. NPR had one gone. Yeah. ESPN had one yeah. gone. Uh, yeah, she's like she's she's both alone on ombudsman Island, yeah. and she's alone on an island within the Times. Like she goes to the
3: newsroom every day and she's the only one who's reporting on the paper. It's like being a leper. (laughs) Would you say that I'm the public editor of this podcast? Uh, (laughs) Is there
1: a way you could be like the inverse of a public editor?
3: (laughs) Well, it was a really interesting conversation. She had uh, a ton to say on the
1: Times and the future of the paper, and also just kind of like newspapers in general. She was the executive editor of the Buffalo News for 13 years, uh, and so she had a lot to say about the newspaper industry and also being a boss. Uh, It was a fun one.
3: Um, Do we have any sponsors this week? We do. We do. We have uh, one. I'm going to give you one guess. Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. It's a really, really simple newsletter, and uh, you probably could use one of those in your life. I get many of them in my inbox, and I enjoy them. They're only getting better. Thank you, Tiny Letter. Uh, Here is Max Linsky with Margaret Sullivan. Hello, Margaret Sullivan.
1: Hello, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it's fun to be here. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I believe you that it's fun to be here, because when I asked you to do this, you were like... Uh, I, I don't
2: I, do this kind of thing. I
1: don't do this kind right. of thing. I do not like to do interviews.
2: It's not that I don't like to do interviews, because I I guess like everyone, I'm happy to talk about myself <laughs> and what I do, but I made a decision at some point in my early time as public editor that I wasn't going to function this way, you know, because I get a lot of press calls and people wanting me to comment, and I just decided I have sort of a thing that I say, which is that I like to let my blog posts and columns speak for themselves, and so it kind of gets me out of a lot of of (laughs) tough spots, but, you know, this is a little bit different.
1: Well, thanks for doing it. I was uh, sure. I uh, did not know that about you. And then I started thinking about having you on and I started doing these these some research and I saw that <laughs> sentence like over and over again. I
2: like to let my blog posts and columns <laughs> speak for themselves. Yeah,
1: it's a delicate one. Well, I appreciate you uh, I appreciate you doing it. For anyone who doesn't know, you are the public editor of the New York Times. And I'm interested maybe just at the start if you could sort of explain to me what that job is. Mm-hmm.
2: The public editor is also n- could be called, and I don't like this word, so I'm glad it's not called this, I could be called an ombudsman, or I suppose in my case, an ombudswoman. So I'm really glad they don't use that. Um, But essentially, I'm the person that people can come to with concerns about journalistic integrity at the Times. You know, for example, if someone thinks there should be a correction and they haven't had any success getting it in, they have sort of a court of last resort, and that's me. But I also function as kind of an internal press critic. So I comment on the journalism at The Times, sometimes in a very serious way and sometimes in a pretty lighthearted way.
1: I mean, even there, you sort of describe two constituencies Mm -hmm. that you're sort of working on behalf Mm -hmm. of. Who do you think you're representing? Like, are you representing readers? Are you representing yourself? Are you representing the paper? Well, I definitely don't represent the paper. Um, And I have to explain
2: that to people a lot because they think, you know, for example, I'll get tweeted at a lot. There needs to be an apology from you. And I'm like, I, I can't. Well, I could apologize, but it wouldn't mean anything because I don't speak for The New York Times. So I speak for myself, but I feel like my constituency is the readership of The New York Times. That's who I represent and that's who I feel like I work for. I don't report up through the structure of the newsroom. You know, I don't report to Dean Beckett. I report within the Times to Arthur Salzberger, but he keeps, you know, the publisher, he keeps a very hands-off approach, which I appreciate a lot. I mean, he essentially says, just do the job and do the job as you see fit. So you
1: basically don't have a
2: boss? I don't have a j- boss. I don't have a job description. I, there's no expectation of how often I'm going to write or file. But I'm very internally driven, which means that I am actually write a lot and I'm very, you know, I think, very productive. But that's just because that's who I am.
1: Yeah, it's a good thing you're that way. If I had that job, it'd be, I'd write like two columns
3: a year.
2: <laughs> there is an expectation that I would write for print every other week. And some of the previous public editors have essentially done that. and right. you know, yeah, written You're writing a lot more than anyone else I write does. a lot more. Yeah. I So I write on um, the, this blog called the Public Editor's Journal. You know, there are weeks where I write every day. There are weeks like this week I have a print deadline. So I've only written one blog post. So I'll probably write again tomorrow. You know, I kind of feel like I want to be active there.
1: How do you decide what to cover?
2: I have a great assistant and we probably get you know 500 emails a week
1: what percentage of those emails are like the crazies
2: well a lot of them are are some of it is spam some of it i'm not necessarily crazy (laughs) but i think it's nothing that really makes sense for me maybe it's something that we Uh, send such a a more gracious way to put it you know but but then there's a percentage of them and maybe it's 20% that are, wow, this is interesting, and this actually could be something that I would write about. Mm -hmm. And then I have to decide from there. And some of it gets eliminated because I've already written about it, and I don't want to do it again. Except I actually have written the same columns over and over sometimes. Like, for example, about the overuse of anonymous sources or anonymous quotation. I've written about that, like, to death.
1: And is that something that readers are bringing to you, or, you know, you were the editor of the buffalo news you've been a journalist your whole life is right. that just a pet peeve of yours oh no it's
2: not a pet peeve of i mean it's not a particular pet peeve of mine it's something that readers really care about i mean particularly they care about it in terms of washington reporting where you know you're reading the story and it's a u.s government official or something and they don't know who that is and it's very hard to judge the story because you don't really know where it's coming from and another way that's used is just sort of in a random feature story or something somebody says something very clever and they don't want to be quoted and you know you just don't have a good sense of where it's coming from so or if somebody uses the cloak of anonymity to um, to trash someone mm-hmm. that's not
1: okay either and that is something that you hear about that is something it that readers notice it definitely is something
2: readers bring to me
1: and it hurts their trust in the paper
2: it definitely does but i mean i'm also i always try to say this that some of the best stories ever in journalism have been done with anonymous sources or confidential sources. Oh, Watergate, for example. Right. It's
1: an issue for you just because it's a tricky issue. Yeah. Sometimes but I mean, it's you worthwhile. can't ever
2: say, I would never say, only talk to people who are going to be quoted on the record. That would be ridiculous.
1: So part of your role is just trying to find that line. Like, yeah, it,
2: find the line
1: and try to explain it. And
2: I mean, I did a column but, once about sort of the disconnect between what reporters ha- Think about this subject and what readers think about it, and they think about it in in completely uh-huh. different ways.
1: If your part of your job is finding that, helping the paper to find that line, maybe you're not representing the paper, but you are kind of like the conscience of the paper in a way.
2: Well, I don't really. I try <laughs> not to think about it that way. I mean, I know people will say that, but I I don't know. I don't really think of it as being the conscience. I mean, what I actually try to do is take reader concerns, or sometimes things that I observe on my own. And then take these things to the editors and writers at The Times and say, well, what do you Mm -hmm. think about this? And what's your point of view? And then I try to, you know, I almost, I do have a little bit of a formula, which is, here's what the readers are complaining about. And here's what they say. I, I quote them. And then I go to, you know, the technology editor. You know, here's what some readers are saying. Maybe you've heard these complaints. What do you say? I get some sort of answer. I use that. And then I... Often will say, and here's what I think, here's my take, and I'll sort of try to sum it up in some reasonable way.
1: So you're basing a great deal of how you make your decisions around what to cover based on what's coming into your inbox.
2: Yes, not entirely though because sometimes i just see things and i want to write about them and i'll go after them
1: on my own but just something that catches your yeah, eye yeah
2: catches my eye or something i've been thinking about or something that seems like kind of a little trend within i mean for example one of the funny things that i've ended up writing about is the you know somewhat ridiculous style store trend stories yeah. that the style section does which i actually have deep affection for like because the they are like the monocle stories yes, of the world yes like the monocle story so so that was a uh, you know, a supposed trend that people, especially in Brooklyn, of course, were, you know, suddenly wearing monocles.
1: I took off my monocle yeah, right before we started. for
2: doing that. I was going to bring mine, but... <laughs> so, you know, I had a little fun with that, and now... And then I developed this thing called the monocle meter. For example, in this past... Um, in this past week's Times, there was a story about women who grow their underarm hair long and then dye it bright colors. And so this was another like sort of monocle story, like, you know, here's a trend. People are dying their underarm hair purple. And it may be that some women are, but it it tends to kind of get overstated into (laughs) something that's like much broader than it actually is. But I love these stories very, very much
1: even if you need to like kind of poke holes in it Yeah, just I like to
2: make fun of them, but I I hope they never go away.
1: It's a certain kind of reader who has the time to write you. Yes. Is it um, emotional enough about the paper mm-hmm. to bring it to your attention? And then also here's a an example from my own life. We have a an app for the iPhone mm-hmm. and the and the iPad and um I would say 95% of the feedback we get about the app is why haven't you made this app for Android yet, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's a very small constituency, and they're very, very vocal. And so I I wonder just how you think about that, and if you Mm -hmm. take that into calculation at all, like, the kind of people who are going to write you.
2: Yeah, well, I hear from people in different ways. So, you know, one of the ways that I hear from people a lot now is on Twitter. So the Twitter audience is definitely one thing, and the people who email public at NYTimes.com are definitely something else and you know I mean I think I could generalize that the Twitter people are probably younger they're probably more obviously I guess more digitally oriented they're probably a little bit more male the people who write who email you know might be you know longtime readers of the New York Times who I mean, certainly from all over the country, maybe all over the world, but, you know, they probably skew a little bit older and have a really, you know, kind of entrenched, deep, passionate feeling about the New York Times because, you know, they grew up with it.
1: Yeah. That's how I feel about the Times. You it, do? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I was raised with no religion. Like, the yeah. Times is, like, was That's basically... Your religion, It's right. like the Red Sox and the Times. You're are basically not alone. Like a lot of with.
2: people feel that way, and they take it very personally. So if they see something happening that they don't like, like, for example, there's too much opinion now in the, you know, news stories have too much opinion in them. I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was not the case when I was growing up, and I don't like it, you know. <laughs> It's like, like standing that's what, in front of a fire hose, right? right. I mean, that's just one of
1: those ones that you're like I could say sorry, but it's not even worth it.
2: It's very hard to fight that.
1: But it it does feel like often, especially on Twitter, these these uh, waves start about particular stories. Oh yeah, particularly when uh, there are mistakes made around mm-hmm. gender mm. and around race. And these things kind of mistakes like, were made. Mistakes were made. Yes, uh, this, there was a piece uh, last weekend about Serena Williams that certainly had that effect. I wonder if do you read the paper like a normal person? Like, did you read that article and you were like, "Wait a second, <laughs> ah, wait, this is <laughs> well." I'm very up.
2: interested in tennis and I play tennis, so I did read it before I ever heard a word from anybody about it, and I sort of said, "Oh my god, this maybe is something- maybe you can just explain what." Oh, what the story was? Yeah. Uh, The story was um, written from Wimbledon, and it basically looked at the question of, you know, the big female tennis stars and their body, body images. And it was kind of set up like Serena Williams versus everybody else. Right. And it made a lot of people crazy because they felt like she was being called unfeminine, Or that there were implications of racism or sexism underneath the surface of the story. I mean, the story was done very carefully so that there was nothing blatant about it. But sometimes it's just the way a story is framed. And so when you, you know, do a piece about, let's look at the body image of tennis stars, you know, particularly with Serena, there might not even be a way to do that story And a lot of people said, why are you even looking at this? I mean, would you ask those questions about men?
1: Especially, arguably, like the greatest living American athlete before a championship. Right. That seems unlikely.
2: Very unlikely that it would be (laughs) done about, you know, about Federer,
1: (laughs) you know, Nadal. Right. There were problems with the story, but the timing was also just part of what felt so off to me. So, I mean, I had that experience. I read it. Uh, online, Yeah. And was just like, Ugh. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and you had that experience?
2: I mean, I, I definitely, you know, I'm like a movie critic who can't really just go to the movies and go, oh, what a great movie. Right. You know, I, I'm always thinking like, oh, is this something that I'm likely to hear about? And I thought, well, I certainly would. And then... You know, the way it sort of started building was I saw a little bit on Twitter about it, and then it just started to be this huge, as you said, sort of a wave. Friday afternoon, we got a few emails about it. I had just come back from vacation. I didn't take it up. But then over the weekend, it kind of got to be this huge, huge thing. And on Monday, I came in and, and wrote about it and quoted, you know, the sports editor and quoted the the writer and a lot of readers and
1: and their opinions. So you you work in the newsroom. Yes, you go to you go to the newsroom every day.
2: I do. Isn't that awkward? <laughs> yes, that's my question. Yeah, yes. it's
1: like this story is like getting. Excuse me for mm-hmm. for being reductive. This story is getting like shed on mm-hmm. all over the internet. Mm-hmm. Clearly, the author and his editors know they there's a know. problem. They did know. And then, like, <laughs> what's that like when you like get up from your desk and walk over and you're like. Yeah. Uh, hey, Bill. Yeah. We need to talk.
2: Well, for one thing, the Times newsroom is on three floors. I'm not on the same floor as sports. Uh, I'm not on the same floor anymore as the main sort of news desk. I'm kind of tucked away a little bit in features, which suits me really well. <laughs> so it's not like I would necessarily see everybody every day. You know, I tend to approach people by email, and then maybe I'll swing by and talk to them. At, you know, but it's it's definitely awkward and it sometimes is you know goes beyond awkward into downright excruciatingly <laughs> uncomfortable and then you know if i write a piece which i did in this case that was you know somewhat critical you know there's like a lot of tension there
1: for some reason i just keep thinking about like um like a high school cafeteria and like you sitting <laughs> at your own table like <laughs> like eating lunch by
3: yourself
2: <laughs> well it's a big place and i actually have you know i have to be kind of careful about having like really lots of friends luckily i've made a lot of friends in my life and i didn't enter the new york times thinking like wow this is a great place for me to
1: Have you made friends there?
2: Yes, i have made <laughs> friends there. Yes, against my better judgment.
1: You know we've only i've uh, only been with you for a couple of minutes but you're a very like smiling warm person do you are you kind of like steely when no, you're at the office? No, no,
2: i don't think so. I I I don't certainly don't intend to be. I don't really think that it's quite as bad as, you know, sitting at the cafeteria
1: table by yourself. It's more like being like the cool hall monitor. Well, I don't know. <laughs>
2: um, a lot of people have actually approached internally, have, have you know, brought stories to my attention or said, you know, would you ever think of looking at this or here's something. So there's that. There's a little bit of a chaplain aspect i think and also i've had people say you know thanks so much for taking that up now those are not the people that this particular story is about probably right so you know i try to move it around uh jill abramson said to me early on well what'll happen here is you'll you'll stick around and eventually you'll alienate everybody and then no one will be talking to you and you'll have to leave (laughs) how
1: far have you uh about three quarters of the way there i think (laughs) I mean, everyone's an adult, right? They understand you're just doing your job. It's not like people don't like you.
2: I mean, I don't think that's for me to answer. (laughs) I don't know. I I mean, I, I don't know. I think some people like me and some people don't really like me. You know, kind of getting back to the whole Twitter thing and how that happens. You know, there is this incredible buildup that happens and this kind of groundswell. And then people start reacting to things that maybe they haven't even read. Mm -hmm. You know, they're reacting to the reaction. Or, as what happens in social media, and I'm not saying this is so terrible, but people are reading a story or seeing something through the lens of the last person who, you know, maybe their friend who posted it on Facebook and commented on it. And so, you know, the idea of coming into it fresh, like you might if you just got the paper at home and started leafing through it, it's the opposite of that.
1: And do you feel like it is part of your job to respond to the wave?
2: Well... Or to, or to put the
1: wave in context for other well, I, readers?
2: Well, I, I think both. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it, I don't think that there should be like tremendous amount of talk and complaint about something that I ignore. But at the same time, I, I try not to get swept up in it mm-hmm. and try to, you know, kind of give it a little bit of perspective.
1: Is there any part of all those people paying such close attention to the times uh, that makes you feel like? your job isn't as necessary as it was when okrant started Mm.
2: well you know i know people say that and that was kind of the rationale when the washington post ended its um, ombuds person they never (laughs) called it a public editor you know it was kind of like well with all the media criticism out there and all the commentary we don't need to pay somebody to do this and you know i think you can make that case i think the thing that that I can bring or that a public editor can bring is the ability to go to the people inside and get their point of view you know which a random person commenting or even a high end extremely articulate intelligent person can't really do Uh like they can't get to Dean Beckhay probably and I I can I mean I haven't had anybody say screw it I'm not going to talk to you I mean they do talk to me they feel An obligation. They think this is sort of part of the workings of the paper that the public editor represents the readers. They're bringing me something. Well, I'm going to talk. You write pretty short. I've always written
1: short. I mean, it's a thing to be proud of. Well, but it feels to me like oftentimes what catches your eye, what catches the waves' eye, what catches readers' eye, mm -hmm. are stories that seem to gloss over or miss nuance. Like are, are are stories that deserve to be treated with more care than they were.
2: That's one of the things that happens.
1: I guess a question I have reading through your stuff Mm -hmm. is when that thing where you go and talk to people and get the quote, Mm -hmm. do you feel like you're able to treat these kind of like nuanced journalistic issues with as much nuance as the reader seemed to be demanding of the paper?
2: Not necessarily. And maybe that's a failing of mine. You know, I'm not trying to write a long magazine piece about every controversy that comes up. I'm trying to kind of air the complaints, get some response, draw some conclusions and move on because there's
1: just so much. But that's also the job.
2: Well, I mean, I could define it however I wanted to. So but I think that's my way mm-hmm. is to, you know, kind of try to cover a lot of bases, you know, and then move on to something else.
1: Do you feel like you have to mostly react to stories? Like, no. is there space in your job to be like proactive? and go out and, like, report something that's just been on your mind?
2: Yeah, I mean, and I will say that there have been a couple times when I have written, like, kind of longer pieces uh, about something, and it tends to be more of a step-back thing. I mean, when the whole Edward Snowden thing was happening with the NSA and all the revelations that were coming out, I decided to go and take a look back at something that had happened years ago when the Times held a story from publication for 13 months. And there was reason to think that Snowden didn't bring his trove of information to the New York Times because he knew that had happened. Mm-hmm. It was a story about eavesdropping, you know, electronic eavesdropping. And I went back and sort of looked at the reasons for that and and all that. Well, th- that was nothing that was coming to me in the mail. And then, like, another thing was, I mean, one of the huge subjects that people do write to me about is coverage of the Middle East. And so during and after the Gaza War, our email was just like completely flooded with complaining email. And, you know, it's very hard to take it up one at a time. It's just pointless, for one thing. You can't get anywhere. So I I tried to write, well, I did write like a longer column that really tried to look at it in a bigger picture
1: way. That column was great, especially the, the way you set it up at the beginning was basically like...
2: I never wanted to
1: write I'm this. I've trying to avoid writing this the <laughs> right, whole time. Right.
2: But I also you know, tried there to make some recommendations mm-hmm. so that it wasn't just like, oh, let's consider oh, this side and that side. I mean, that's really kind of pointless. I made the recommendation, for example, that there be a native Arabic speaker in the Times' mm-hmm. Jerusalem Bureau.
1: I can imagine that uh, trying to write that column after getting thousands and thousands of emails yeah. on the topic was pretty stressful. Yes,
2: it was stressful.
1: Are there other ones that are tricky for you? Are there other, Are there other? I mean, you're dealing with, like Obama's got this line right about like uh, he's only making decisions that no one else can make. Mm. They're all 51, 49 decisions. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, these things come up in the moment. I mean, pretty early on, there was this story about uh, the Tesla electric car. So it was a really simple story, but it was about sort of a test drive. And it was a test drive that went very, very badly because the car, you know, not only ran out of battery power, but ended up having to be towed or put on a flatbed bed truck to get to the charging station. Not good. Not good. Elon Musk is the CEO of Tesla. And he was very, very upset at how his car was portrayed. And the writer was a very well-respected writer who you know, wrote what happened to him. And so I had to try to make sense of that and come to some conclusions. And it was really very difficult. Why? because i could understand both points of view and there was really strong feeling on both sides i mean this huge tesla sort of elon musk community of people who were largely on twitter and then sort of the the new york times you know writers and editors who really felt like the story was completely fine mm-hmm. and you know trying to kind of come to some
1: conclusions I mean, you're reacting often, like, in the moment, Mm. and especially as, like, the wave begins to crest. I'm sure there's some pressure for you to sort of, like, get out your your response and and the paper's response. Mm -hmm. Are there there any... Do I second-guess myself? Yeah. Are Are there any that you regret? Have you not... Are there ones where you feel like you didn't get it right?
2: Oh, yeah. Of course. I mean, I think that sometimes... I'm doing less of this now, but... I can remember certainly getting caught up a bit in the social media craziness about something. Mm -hmm. And I don't think really making a fundamental error of judgment, but probably overstating the case a little bit. For example, there was an obituary of this woman, her name was Yvonne Brill, and um, the obituary said in its first paragraph or something that she made a mean beef stroganoff. Well she was a rocket scientist literally a rocket scientist but the way the obituary writer had written it was kind of trying to make the point that she wasn't just a <laughs> right. a rocket scientist, she also was like great homemaker. And this was not well received. Uh, you see
1: you see obits uh, about men like that all the time. Yeah,
2: of course. <laughs> so this was not well received. It was being it, it was certainly being called sexist and everything. And I think that I in writing about it, I kind of adopted a little, possibly a little bit too much of the mob mentality about it and mm-hmm. probably came down a little harder on it than I should have, in a way, because I was reacting to the very, very strong feeling that was out there. I mean, I never want to be an apologist for the New York Times. I don't want to say, well, this is really how we feel about it.
1: You got to avoid the role of PR.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's the, that would be the worst thing that anybody could say for me. I mean, that, that's completely opposite
1: of the role. Right. If you never get to the Abramson, you've eventually pissed off everyone in the building point, right. then you're not really exactly. doing the job. That's right. I wonder if part of the reason that you sort of like went further than you actually in, in hindsight felt comfortable with that one is that it does seem like uh, gender is is uh, a thing that you're super focused on, not just how it's treated in the paper, but how it's treated in the newsroom. Mm. You know, I mean, you're the first non-male public editor. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how you think the paper's doing on that front.
2: I mean, generally, I think okay, there are a lot now a lot of women high on the masthead, you know more than there were when when I first came. there was a at that time Jill was the editor, so that was big, but you know she really worked to get more women in good high places, covering her firing must have been tricky, yeah, I didn't really do much with it i I wrote one piece kind of in the moment. it was a very weird set of circumstances. Very uncomfortable uh, meeting in the newsroom where where her firing was announced, and Dean's coming on board as editor was announced. And you know, then there was this whole other thing unfolding off to the side about was this really about pay equity? And it was really hard to make sense of it. so i'm I'm not sure I ever did. And although, I thought I could approach it, it really, I'm supposed to be writing about the journalism at the Times, and that was really a personnel thing.
1: But you feel pretty clearly that aside from these very high profile personnel stuff, it's not really your job to get into that.
2: You know, I I tend to define the job very broadly, and I tended to write about whatever really interests me. So the Nate Silver thing really interested me, and I thought it was within my purview. I mean, maybe not, maybe not in a very narrow sense, but. Again, you know, there isn't anybody saying, well, you can or can't do that. Mm-hmm. So I, if I think it affects the readers of the Times, which in these cases I thought it did. I mean, the other thing that I've written about is racial diversity at the Times and and how after this pretty big blow up about a story that Alessandra Stanley wrote about Shonda Rhimes – Um, And you might remember it because of the phrase, yes, angry black woman. It came to my attention that there were no black critics at the time. They have a staff of 20 culture critics, but no African-American culture critics on that staff. I've written about that. Is that the journalism at The Times, you know, strictly speaking? No. Does it affect the readership of The Times? I think it does
1: or could. For the most part you're going to gravitate towards issues that aren't completely black and white, except for these kind of, like, bungles. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the bungles are the bungles, and you yes. need to address the bungles. But I guess my assumption going into this was that those ones where it's not totally clear, where it is a kind of 50-50 editorial call, mm-hmm. would be very tricky for you to write.
2: Yeah, they are tricky. And sometimes I, again, with the, the Middle East column, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to really find your way through that.
1: But you made those decisions. I mean, you edited a daily newspaper for how many years?
2: For 13 years. For 13 years. Yeah.
1: So you were making those decisions yourself. I was. Do you miss that? Oh, no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I feel like I did it. You know, I mean, uh-huh. it was great. It was a privilege. That's my hometown. Uh, I was the first woman editor of the paper. I had a staff of 200. You know, I got to hire a lot of great people. Um, it got to make all the decisions about, you know, not alone, obviously, but, you know, lead the paper into the digital age, you know, make decisions about the stories that ran on the front page and, and deal with all the terrible things that come up, like a plagiarism case and all the things that happened, lawsuits, especially at the time I was doing it. It was very, very wearing because it was during the period when newspapers were in a. And they still are in this downward cycle, yeah, got, and so it was had, kind of managing the decline.
1: Yeah, you had scores of of like buyouts, right?
2: We had a lot of buyouts. We did not. I mean, I was very, very proud that I never laid anyone off, and I had to work really hard not to. Yeah. But we had to reduce the staff.
1: Those got to be hard conversations to have. Yeah. I mean, if you're if these conversations you're having now are awkward, those are. Uh...
2: Yeah, I mean, we ended up offering voluntary buyouts, and people were happy. You know, in many cases, we're pretty happy to have the opportunity to get some extra cash and retire if they were going to anyway.
1: So you don't you don't miss being the boss, and you don't miss being the one to make those editorial calls.
2: I mean, it's it was great. I wouldn't not have done it, but yeah. I don't have the desire to do it now. I'm really happy to be on the creative side of things. I mean, I I see th- because I I consider myself a writer. I mean, that's kind of what I do every day. It's not the only thing I do, but it's it's what I do, and I I think that's why I got into journalism. And so writing a column that is not exactly of the New York Times, but still appears in the New York Times is, you know, it's a great thing to do.
1: I went back and I was I was reading some stuff. I read your like your opening uh, column in 2012. And, and there was a lot of press around you getting hired. And w- one of the things that came out of it was that you you had kind of like campaigned for the job. Yes. I think it would be useful to our listeners, Mm -hmm. many of whom are uh, young journalists, uh, to hear a little bit about that. Uh, It would also be useful for me because I'm not good at this either. But like, (laughs) how do you like walk me through that? Like you're like, this job is open and you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go get that fucking job.
2: Okay, here's the way this worked. So I had actually thought for many years that I would a fun thing for me to do after I was kind of tired of being the editor of the Buffalo News, would be to be either the public editor of the New York Times or the ombudswoman at the Washington Post, which now is impossible because they don't have one. So I was reading Eric Wemple's column in the Washington Post, his blog. This is in May of 2012. And he reported that Art Brisbane was going to leave in August. And I thought, huh, how about that? There it is. That's my job. And as it happened, my daughter was at NYU, so that was good. My son was in law school. Um, so, you know, from a parenting logistical point of view, I could do it. And I I pretty much did decide that I was going to get the job.
1: Did you uh, tell anyone or just yourself?
2: Oh, no, I'm sure I told everybody. <laughs> I mean, I'm I this. I, I'm sure I told my closest friends at any rate. I had met Jill before, Jill Abramson. I did reach out to her in some way. I might have emailed her. She said, oh, you know, we'd be happy to have your application. Phil Corbett is the guy who's going to be dealing with the search process. They were doing a big, you know, kind of legitimate national search. And I think at one point they had 60 candidates or something like that. So anyway, I was asked to do a memo. I tried to make it a great memo. How long was your memo? How long was it? Yeah. not very long i don't i write short what can i say it was probably it was probably 800 words i think there might have been a couple memos i had to write uh-huh. but i tried really hard to make them great and i and i showed them to people and i asked for input from smart people and i you know i just really thought this is an important thing that i'm doing here this is a make or break you know i think i was one of maybe 6 or so 6 to 10 finalists and i came in for an interview with several senior editors. And that seemed to go really well. So then I was like, this is going great. Uh, I think it's going to happen. Then I was asked to come back for a second round of interviews, and that was a high-pressure day. The interviews were with Jill Abramson, Andy Rosenthal, who's the editorial page editor, and Arthur Salzberger. And then there was this you know, fairly horrible two weeks of nothingness. And I thought, oh, Maybe I'm not going to get this after all. What am I going to do with my life?
1: Because <laughs> um, and, and you've then, had the same job for 13 years. Like, this th- is the first job you've done for in a long the time. Only
2: one, yeah, I mean, ever, I think. <laughs> it was the only one I really wanted. Um, so then I was driving because I used to drive. I had a car. I don't ha- have one anymore since I live in New York. But I was driving, and the New York Times number came across my little Bluetooth thing, you know, 212-556-1234 or whatever it is. And I thought, huh. didn't Doesn't
1: it just come up as 111111? One, 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 one,
2: one, no, one? it didn't. It came up as an actual number. And, hey, it was Arthur Salzberger, and he was offering me the job. And uh, I said, great, I accept, but I accept without having had one word of conversation about salary. <laughs> and he said, somewhat famously, at least in my mind, oh, don't worry about that, <laughs> and, which uh, I'm sure the people who who had to actually deal with the question of my salary were not happy about it. Anyway, that all worked out. Uh, But, you know, I mean, I just, I think that I gave it everything I had and I was pretty intent on getting it. Now, you know, you can do that and not get a job, but it worked out for me.
1: I'm not going to let you brush over that money thing quite Mm -hmm. so easily because that Mm -hmm. is another thing that people ask us to ask more about all the time. Mm -hmm. So
2: I did negotiate.
1: Yeah, if your boss says, we'll we'll take care of that later, Uh what do you do?
2: I tell this particularly to women, young women who I happen to talk to, is all they you know, they can say no, but you haven't really hurt yourself. Right. They can say, Oh, that's ridiculous. There's no way we can pay you that. But it's worth a try.
1: Right. And even if they say no, you still kinda of like got them on their heels a little bit.
2: Well, I mean it it's not always it's not always effective, but it's worth it's worth asking. And I definitely noticed, you know, when I was a boss that it was the guys who were coming in and asking for pay raises or negotiating their salary before they started the job. So it's it's very socialized.
1: Did you try and change that at the Buffalo News?
2: No. What, do <laughs> you think I tried to encourage people to get, ask me for raises? Absolutely <laughs> not. I was trying to control my budget, but it's something I noticed. Yeah.
1: yeah. Is there anything else when you're, you're teaching at CUNY now and you were at uh, Columbia before, is there anything else that, not on the like, you're. You're. Everyone should go read your 395 words of advice. Thank you. Uh, particularly the one that says um, read an article before you tweet it. Yes,
2: that's for sure.
1: <laughs> that's. The, I. Uh, I see that far too much. Yes. Uh, that's like a pretty consistent experience in well, so my once life. Once you've is made
2: like, the mistake, you don't forget. You know.
1: Yeah. Well, especially there's so much like uh, praise tweeting mm. that goes on. That like. Well, I, we see this a lot, right? I'm paying attention to like a particular corner of Twitter that's around very long articles mm. and we'll see it often that like an article will come out and then like two, you know 10,000 word article will come out and then five minutes later people are being like this is amazing just in, <laughs> just incredible right it's like you did not There's you did no way not read, you that, read man. that right I, I know you didn't You're read right. that exactly but in a more professional sense I, as someone who who ran a newsroom for a long time who who's in touch with kind of uh, J school students mm-hmm. and younger writers, who's now seeing the times try and figure itself out. Is there advice you have for young, for young journalists Is there uh, on the on the kind of like business, how you get hired, how you navigate this world? Right. And
2: well, it sounds paradoxical, but you have to know how to do a lot of things, and it's really great if you also have a specialty. And that it sounds opposite, but I really do think that you know you. Let, yes, you need to know how to shoot video and edit video and maybe even do a little bit of coding, but it's also great if you're sort of a an expert on dance or something, you mm-hmm. know. Um, You never really know what people are looking for. So this is hugely important to understand when you're applying for a job, you really need to understand what it is they need and how you can help them get there. It's not so much that you're so wonderful or that you may have a personal brand that you've been burnishing. I mean, I hate that. Rather that you know, here's this news organization, and they're trying to do something. Well, figure out what it is they're trying to do and how you might be able to help them get there.
1: Yeah, it's the only advice I ever have for, you know, because of this show, we get emails from kind of young writers a lot. And the only advice I ever have is just, like, remember that you're trying to solve a problem for them. Exactly. They're not trying to solve a problem for you.
2: How can you make
1: the person who's hiring you look really good? (laughs) Exactly. How do you think about the paper differently than you did when you started? What have you learned about the place?
2: It's interesting because when I first came to the Times, I felt like, oh, this is very, obviously, it's a much bigger place, uh, it's in a bigger city, but it felt very familiar to me after, you know, a career in newspapers. It's like, there's the page one meeting, and, you know, there's this, the, the culture editor, and here's the staff of critics, you know, I it, it all seemed very familiar. It felt like a newspaper that puts out a digital, that was putting out a digital edition, But it doesn't feel like that anymore. It feels like a digital media company that happens to put out a newspaper. I mean, it's changed that much in three years. So that, to me, is the the biggest change.
1: Just watching that evolution Watching
2: that happen. I mean, and it's happening at such a fast pace. And the amount of attention being lavished, for example, on how to put the journalism most effectively on mobile Mm -hmm. and you know, how to capture that audience and the amount of attention on social media and all that stuff. Not that the other things, like what's happening in the, you know, Beirut Bureau, those things are still important, but there's been definitely a shift in attention.
1: How do you think the paper's doing with that transition? Well,
2: I think about as, about as well as any, you know, legacy media organization, it's really hard. <laughs> it's,
1: it's a pretty low yeah, bar. Yeah, well, I mean,
2: maybe it's a low bar. I mean, I think it's doing... It's doing well. It's really heartening that there are as many digital subscribers as there are. Yeah. You know, a million. It's incredible. The way they finally figured out the paywall has been pretty impressive. But, you know, the tricky thing there is that 70, more than 70% of the New York Times's total revenue still comes from print in one way or another. Either print advertising or consumer, you know, meaning sort of subscriptions. And so that's a very, very troubling number. Yeah, You know, we know the direction that's going in. It's not a good direction. Um, but the that's where the revenue is still coming from. So I, you know, I don't know how you do that correction.
1: I was hoping you'd, you'd had that all figured out. <laughs> I mean, I really like it, it's, uh, I love the thing. I'm telling you, it's like a, it, the the New York Times and the Boston Red Sox. Those mm-hmm. are the things I was raised with. And
2: Do you read the paper and print at all?
1: Yeah, I, I love to read the paper and print. It feels like a luxury item. hmm well, the 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 future of the New York Times may be farther out than you getting through your last quarter of the newsroom, pissing off the newsroom. That's right. What do you hope your 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 impact will have been? What do you what do you see as like you know uh, the legacy of your tenure?
2: Yeah, I just hope that readers have felt like they had a representative. Like I don't expect there to be you know you know some sort of lasting policy changes or anything like that although there have been a couple things like you know I think I was influential on uh, slightly influential on getting the paper to move away from uh, quote approval um, you know getting letting politicians approve their quotes before they went into stories but in general I, I mean it's a job that you do in the moment and I just hope that readers feel like they've gotten a better explanation of how the times works
1: well, Margaret, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming in. Thanks for agreeing to do an interview. How to do it?
2: what I don't normally do. It yeah. was fun. It was thanks okay. for having me. Maybe,
1: maybe you'll do more of them now. I don't think so. <laughs> thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Molly Bain. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, Tiny Letter and Netflix. And thanks so much to Margaret Sullivan for doing the rare interview. She's writing every Sunday in the print edition of the New York Times. She's writing all week on the website. Go read her stuff. We will be back next week with episode 151. Good lord, we have done a lot of these.